appreciate each one who participated in our service tonight. Certainly appreciated that very much. It was uh, wonderful as we prepare to hear the Word of God this evening. I said I was going to begin a new series on the life after death, and I did already speak on the fact that our spirits continue to, to live on as our dead bodies are placed uh, in the grave. And I said the real essence of us is our spirit. And so we go to be with God. I said we were conscious. We see, know, hear. And uh, I drew a comparison between the fact that God is a spirit and we are a spirit. We're to worship him in spirit and in truth, that's in our innermost being, our thoughts, our emotions, our, our will, our intellect. And so we continue on as persons, but in a disembodied state. Tonight, I'm going to begin by looking at the concept of resurrection, because we have a tendency, not just us, but Christendom as a whole, has a tendency to focus on that time in which we are with the Lord, but absent from the body. There's a, a tendency to focus on this temporary period before the resurrection, when in reality, the great hope that is before us is, in fact, our physical bodily resurrection. And because of this failure to really contemplate the resurrection, we get these unfortunately, inaccurate thoughts about what eternity is going to be like. You get pictures of floating around in clouds and harps and, and uh, just worshiping uh, day and night, 24 hours a day, that kind of thing. But that's not what is presented in the Scriptures. Uh, the new heaven and new earth is a time in which we are bodily raised from the dead, and we live an existence much like the existence that we now have, but without sin. It is an existence that God had intended for us to enjoy, uh, much like the Garden of Eden experience. That is ultimately what we're looking forward to. So, I'm going to be focusing our studies on the resurrected state. I will make some allusions uh, to this intermediate period, but the main emphasis is going to be on the resurrected state. So tonight I begin by looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin looking because I'm going to spend some weeks looking at the resurrection passages because they give us a lot of information for we're going to have a resurrection body like his. So we're going to look at those passages, but tonight I'm just going to introduce the subject of resurrection. I have here, I'm heavily indebted to two books for much of this material. The first is a book entitled The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright, published in 2003. N.T. Wright is quite the biblical scholar, and uh, he's very unique in the sense that uh, he's a part of the Church of England, uh, much like J.I. Packer was, and just as J.I. Packer had to defend many of the evangelical truths in a very liberal setting, so that's what N.T. Wright finds himself 
doing, and he's written the seminal work on the resurrection. It's a book about this thick in which he uh, lays forth the material for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's really been a game changer uh, in the liberal world because he's brought many of these questions uh, to light and has done a terrific job in defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright is very unique because not only uh, does he write um, at a scholarly level, but he also writes at a very uh, practical level, uh, a devotional level, if you will, a popular level. And uh, one of the books that he has written that governs this subject is entitled Surprised by Hope. And it's a book I would highly recommend to you, uh, talking about the resurrection. It's devotional in nature, and uh, it's of, of great value. The next book is by Hank Hangraff, uh, Resurrection. But tonight, all the quotations in this handout are from the resurrection of the Son of God. This is going to be a little tedious tonight. There's not a lot of devotional thought associated with it. But I wanted to lay a foundation because I think the same problem exists today that existed in the New Testament era and exists within even liberalism. And that is a quasi-understanding of resurrection. Uh, that somehow we think of it as, as eternal life, but we lose sight of the, the physical nature of it. So, uh, we look at uh, these many quotes tonight from the resurrection of the Son of God. Introduction. The Discovery Channel aired a documentary entitled... The Lost Tomb of Jesus. And that documentary, we wouldn't be at all surprised, was a very belittling of the thought of the resurrection. It seems preposterous to some that Jesus would have risen from the dead. Now we begin the quotes. Proposing that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead was just as controversial 1,900 years ago as it is today. The discovery that dead people stayed dead was not first made by the philosophers of the Enlightenment. You've heard me use that phrase again because I think it's a powerful statement. I like uh, when uh, he says that uh, everybody knew that dead people stayed dead. Because that's one of the thoughts. That there was this willingness to accept the resurrection because... 2,000 years ago, people were simple. Or, to put it more bluntly, people were stupid. And they were much more gullible. And so, they could be hoodwinked into thinking that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. And today, we are much more enlightened. We know much more about science. We know that the resurrection couldn't have taken place. And so, why did they believe it? Well, because they were ignorant. They didn't know science. They were just stupid. And N.T. Wright says, while they may not have understood modern science, they understood that dead people stayed dead. Everybody knows that dead people stay dead. And so, it was 
as difficult for them to believe in the resurrection as it is for us. And that's the premise of this lengthy handout tonight, to establish that it was as difficult in the New Testament era to believe in the resurrection as it is for us. uh, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Many believed that the dead were non-existent outside of Judaism. Nobody believed in resurrection. We're going to come back to that point uh, time and time again. Outside of Judaism, outside of the teaching of the Old Testament, there was no other religion that taught the resurrection from the dead. There were many religions that taught about life after death. And you think about the pyramids. You think of uh, King Tut and others. And how they put all kinds of treasures in the tomb so that they could be used in the afterlife. But they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. They were not expecting that mummified body to ever come out of the pyramid, is the point. Lots of things could happen to the dead in the beliefs of pagan antiquity, but resurrection was not among the available options. While the view that there was life after death was common, the concept of resurrection was not. And I mentioned that one of the things that really separates evangelical Christianity from from all other religions, is this very concept of resurrection. People believe in reincarnation, all kinds of things, soul sleep, annihilationism, etc., etc., etc. But resurrection is unique to evangelical Christianity. We can see the belief in resurrection was not held in high regard by noting Paul's address in Athens. If you remember, Paul goes to Athens because it is the seat of learning. We find out that people gather together just to hear something new. Acts 17, 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Acts 17.32 When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. So, It was an oddity, this teaching on the resurrection of the dead. So, theme, what are we to understand by the term resurrection? First, the modern view of how resurrection is to be understood. Modern view being liberal Christianity. There is a paradigm that is widely accepted in the worlds both of scholarship and many liberal churches. That the Jewish context provides a fuzzy setting in which resurrection could mean a variety of different things. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. That is what the scholarly and liberal world is saying. 
that the earliest Christian writer Paul did not believe in a bodily resurrection, but held a more spiritual view. That the earliest Christians did not believe in his bodily resurrection, but in his exaltation, ascension, glorification. And is going to be in heaven in some kind of special capacity. And they came to use resurrection language initially to denote that belief and only subsequently to speak of an empty tomb or seeing the risen Jesus. So the idea here is that the idea of Jesus coming forth from the tomb is much later. That early Christianity didn't teach that at all. They just taught that, that Jesus continued on in some sense. Uh, that his spirit went to be with God, but not physically. E. That the resurrection stories in the Gospels are late inventions designed to bolster up this second stage belief. And so these narratives are added much, much later uh, than the earlier parts of the Gospels in liberal theology. That such scenes of Jesus, as may have taken place, are best understood in terms of Paul's conversion experience, which itself is to be explained as a religious experience internal to the subject, rather than involving the seeing of any external reality, and that the early Christians underwent some kind of fantasy or hallucination. In other words, the seeing of Jesus is purely in the sense of a vision. They didn't see him literally. They only saw visions of Jesus, but not Literally, eye-opening encounters with Jesus. That's what is taught in scholarship and in liberal theology. G. That whatever happened to Jesus' body, opinions differ as to whether it was even buried in the first place, it was not resuscitated and certainly was not raised from the dead. Um, I remember hearing a Easter message by, uh, shouldn't do this because now I'm talking off the top of my head now. It always gets me in trouble. Shuler. Remember Shuler in California? What was his first name? Robert Shuler. Yes. Uh, the Crystal Cathedral. And I remember him preaching an Easter message. And uh, in that message, he said, did Christ come forth bodily from the grave? And the answer was, I don't know. He said, probably not, but it doesn't matter whether he did or not. It only matters what you believe. Well, certainly that is false. But that is very common kind of expressions of thought. So the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. It has frequently, frequently been argued, indeed, insisted upon, that whatever we mean by the resurrection of Jesus, it is not accessible to historical investigation. These are stories. And uh, we live 2,000 years afterwards, so we can't really treat them as true history. Uh, because how are you going to go back and analyze them? So that's the next subject. Over against this, I shall argue that the resurrection of Jesus, whatever it was, can and must be seen as at least a historical problem. What, though, do we mean by historical? History and its cognates have been used within debates about Jesus and the resurrection in at least five significant ways. Now, here's where we get a little tedious. Uh, don't go to sleep. First, there is history as event. If we say something is historical in this sense, we mean it happened. Whether or not we can know or prove that it happened. The death of the last dinosaur is in that sense a historical event. Even though no human witnessed it 
or wrote about it at the time. And we are very unlikely to discover when and where it took place. Similarly, we use the word historical of persons or things to indicate simply and solely that they existed. So, his first point is, history allows that for which no one has seen, no one has witnessed. Uh, he cites the last dinosaur on the face of the earth. There had to be one. They passed out of existence. We don't know when it happened. We don't know where it happened. We can't dig it up. We can't see it. We can't prove it. But yet, it's historical. We know it to be true. And he is saying, in that sense, the resurrection is historical. Secondly, there is a history as a significant event. Not all events are significant history. It is often assumed uh, that it consists of ones that are. The adjective that tends to go with this is historic. A historic event is not simply an event that took place, but one whose occurrence carried momentous consequences, like a historic person, building, or object, is one perceived to have had particular significance, not merely existence. So, for example, an old house may be historical. Uh, it may date back to 1720, but it doesn't have a lot of significance. It's just old. A lot of things are just old. They're, they're history, but they're not historical in the sense of being special. But of course, if it's a home that George Washington slept in, all of a sudden it becomes of historical value. It becomes of historical worth because of the event that is associated with it. That's the second use of the word history. Third, there is history as provable event. To say that something is historical in this sense is to say not only that it happened, but that we can demonstrate that it happened on the analogy of mathematics or the so-called hard sciences. So, we can prove it. We've got videotape. We've got something that shows that it took place. Four, there is history as writing about events in the past. To say that something is historical in this sense is to say that it was written about, or perhaps in principle could have been written, or in perhaps in principle could have been written about. So this might include, quote unquote, historical novels. Historical novels are novels that are set in particular periods of time. And they seek to be faithful to those periods of time. But they're novels. They're not true. But they depict accurately the kinds of events and the kinds of activities that took place in the time period in which they represent. Fifthly, there is history in what modern historians can say about a topic. In this sense, historical means not only that which can be demonstrated and written, but that which can be demonstrated and written within the post-Enlightenment worldview, application. Sense one, there is a debate as to whether in writing about the resurrection, the ancients were writing about an event or faith event. So, that's the debate. Were they writing about something that really happened, or were they writing about something that they believed that happened? Sense two, there is virtually full agreement that whatever it was that happened was extremely significant. So, whether it was a faith event or whether it was a literal event, his point is it was a significant event because it changed the world. Christianity was born. 
People were dying for this belief. C, sense three. There are enormous issues with sense three and what is meant by proof that will be discussed another time. We're not going to discuss it, but he discusses it at length in uh, the book. And sense four is unproblematic. The event that has been written about, even if it is all made up. So there's no question that there's loads of material out there. So now, the historical use of the term resurrection. Ever since the time of Paul, people have tried to write about Jesus' resurrection. When they said Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, were they trying to make some kind of historical claim about Jesus? Or did they themselves know that this was a metaphor for their own remarkable religious experience, the rise of faith, and so on? So what did they mean by this? Here there is no difference between pagans, Jews, and Christians. They all understood the Greek word uh, anastasis and its cognates and the other related terms we shall meet to mean new life after a period of being dead. Pagans denied this possibility. Some Jews affirmed it as a long-term future hope. Virtually all Christians claimed that it happened to Jesus and that it would happen to them in the future. All of them were speaking of a new life, after life, after death, in the popular sense, a fresh living embodiment following a period of death as a state. In other words, he goes to great lengths and demonstrates that this Greek word cannot be understood in any other way than meaning bodily resurrection. That that's the only way that that word has ever been used. So what they meant by it is clear. They meant that Jesus came forth bodily from the, day, uh, from the dead. The meaning of resurrection as life after death, after death cannot be overemphasized. Not because much more modern writing continues to use resurrection as a virtual synonym for life after death in the popular sense. It has sometimes been proposed that this usage was current even for this century, but the evidence simply is not there. In other words... In other words, over a period of time, the term resurrection has come to mean simply belief in life after death. But that is not the way that it was understood in the New Testament era. A good example of that would be like baptism. Today, baptism can mean sprinkling, pouring, or immersing in water. But in the New Testament era, it did not. Over a period of time, it has come to mean that. And so, as you read back into the New Testament, it gets confusing on the part of some. But in the New Testament era, it was clear. Baptism meant immersion. But it has taken on a different meaning over a period of time. And N.T. Wright says that's what's happened with this term, resurrection. D. Resurrection means bodily life after uh, after life after death or if you prefer bodily life after the state of death it is what will happen to people who are present dead not what has already happened to them so we're talking about a future event we cannot stress too strongly that from Homer onwards the language of resurrection was not used to denote life after death in general or any of the phenomena uh, supposed to occur within such a life the great majority of the ancients believed in life after death Many of them developed, as we have seen, complex and fascinating beliefs about it and practices in relation to it. But other than with, than with Judaism and Christianity, they did not believe in resurrection. 
Resurrection denoted a new embodied life which would follow whatever life after death there might be. Resurrection was, by definition, not the existence into which someone might or might not go immediately upon death. It was not a disembodied heavenly life. It was a future stage out beyond all that. It was not a description or redefinition of death. It was death's reversal. That's the culminating statement for the first section. That's what is meant by resurrection. It was future. It was after people were continuing on in an afterlife. It comes future to us. Number four, the uniqueness of teaching that Jesus rose from the dead. In ancient paganism, there were concepts of life after death, but there was no belief in the bodily resurrection. Now that gets a little redundant. B, Judaism stood alone in its belief concerning an eventual distant resurrection from the dead. Job 19.26 After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. However, not all Jews believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. Matthew 23.23 That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. There are two major groups in uh, Judaism in the New Testament era. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees actually outnumbered the Pharisees. But we wouldn't know that from reading the New Testament because the New Testament kind of just brushes them off. The New Testament doesn't have a lot to say about the Sadducees. But they would have been the liberal element of that, of that day. They would be people who did not They were Jewish in ancestry and they were religious, but they didn't take the Old Testament literally. They didn't believe the stories of the Old Testament. They'd be much like the liberal church in our day and age. Jesus focuses on the Pharisees because they believe the Bible to be the word of God. They believe the Bible to be true. And so he focuses on them. them. Two, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of the dead. Acts 23, verse 6. Then Paul This is as he's standing on trial. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that they are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Pharisees believed in angels. The Pharisees believed in spirits. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. So Jesus said, uh, excuse me. So Paul said, I'm on trial here for belief in the resurrection. And that immediately got the Pharisees on his side. Because they believed the resurrection too. But the Sadducees did not. Therefore, the teaching of the resurrection was controversial in and of itself. Even among the Jews. Luke 20, 26. They were unable to trap him in whatever he had said, therefore in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. 
Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And the same way, even the seventh died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose life will she be? Since the seven are married to her. They raised this question out of disbelief. They thought they had Jesus here. Here's a question that he's not going to be able to answer. They thought it made no sense. The Sadducees were too enlightened to believe in the resurrection. So even in Judaism, there was a minority view that looked forward to some future resurrection. Okay, so we're, we're talking about the time before Jesus. In the time before Jesus, it was a small minority of Jewish people that literally believed that there would be a resurrection. Number five. The Old Testament, though, not in great detail, spoke of resurrection of the dead, which formed the basis of the belief in Judaism. Because there were a minority of people, Jewish people, that believed in the resurrection, it has become popular to assert that the Old Testament itself did not teach the resurrection. But that is false. The Old Testament does teach the resurrection. All we are saying in reality is the number of true believing Jews was a minority. And we know that from the Word of God itself. It says that they are a remnant. Believers are always in the minority. At any period of time. Narrow is the way few there be that find it. There is there's not a situation in which believers are going to be in the majority. If you are an evangelical, just accept that you are going to be in the minority. Job spoke the resurrection from the dead. I already read that verse, so I'm going to move on. Isaiah spoke of resurrection from the dead. Isaiah 26, 19. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. That's, that's pretty clear. Your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. That is bodily resurrection in the Old Testament. Ezekiel spoke of resurrection from the dead. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to those bones. I will make breath enter you. You will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, 
There was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. There was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath entered them, that they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy, prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people. I am going to open your graves and bring you from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. So, the Old Testament does in fact teach a future Resurrection. Conclusion. When the early church, excuse me, when the early Christians spoke of Jesus being raised from the dead, the natural meaning of that statement throughout the ancient world was the claim that something had happened to Jesus, which had happened to nobody else. That's a significant statement. They were claiming that something happened to Jesus that happened to no one else. A great Many things supposedly happened to the dead, but resurrection did not. The pagan assumed it was impossible. The Jewish world believed it would happen eventually, but knew perfectly well that it had not done so yet. So they had a future hope in the resurrection, but they had never seen a resurrection. Jew and non-Jew alike heard the early Christians to be saying that it happened to Jesus. They did not suppose that the early Christians were merely asserting that Jesus' soul had attained some kind of heavenly bliss or special status. They did not think Jesus' disciples were merely describing with great hyperbole their regular feats at his tomb. In other words, the people understood. The disciples were saying, something happened to Jesus that has never happened to any other human being. That is, that he rose from the dead. Some, some were prepared for that teaching. For some of the Jewish people believed that there would be someday a resurrection. But it was hard to fathom that it had occurred when Jesus rose from the dead. And we'll look at the disciples and see that they were surprised. By the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But my point to you tonight of going through this material is that when we're talking about resurrection, we are talking about physical coming forth from the grave. And that's what we are looking forward to. That's our final state. Coming forth bodily from the dead. That doesn't happen now. That doesn't happen tomorrow. Nobody is experiencing that in heaven now. But there will be a day in which the bodies of all dead believers are going to be raised. And we are going to be reunited, body and soul, just as Jesus on the third day was reunited, body and soul. On the first day, where did he go? He said to the uh, 
Thief on the cross, the day you'll be with me in paradise. His spirit went to be with God. His body was placed in a tomb. But three days later, there was a reuniting of his body and his soul. And he came forth bodily out of that tomb. That's what we are looking forward to. A time in which our bodies and our spirits are reunited. And we are going to come forth bodily out of the tomb. I want to talk about that. Because that's the great hope. And that's often what is lost in this discussion of life after death. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, thank you for your word. And thank you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the promise that because he rose, we too will rise also. Uh, Lord, uh, teach us uh, through this process. May it bring us great comfort and joy and a longing and an expectation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. 